Welcome one and all to another episode of Left Turn Canada. Andy Burkowski, Christo Avalise here, and I know for the last several weeks, a lot of y'all have been on us about how much we're talking about Ontario politics and what just fell into our lap right now, the news from out west that BC Premier John Horgan will not be seeking re-election. He's citing his health. And uh, yeah, Christo, I think this is a good chance you know, just to look at the successes and failures when it does come to NDP leadership uh, in a province because you know here whenever we talk about Ontario politics like that seems to be a reasonable stepping stone to maybe the future that we want but looking at uh, what others are describing as the legacy of Horgan in BC it kind of seems like, you know, it, it makes me wonder what would happen if we did have kind of more establishment NDP leadership here in Ontario and if maybe it would lead to a result that's, uh, yeah, that we're not hoping for. So what do you what do you think about this situation? I mean, I definitely think it's, uh, you know, it's sad that, mm-hmm. you know, it's he's sort of been forced to do it in this way. I know he, he says in his statement where basically John Horgan comes out and says that, this is not about a, a recurrence of cancer, but he seems to think that like he doesn't have the ability to go forward, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe beyond this because he says in his official statement, you know, I'm pr- uh, a second bout of cancer and dozens of radiation treatments has led me to take stock. I'm proudly cancer free, but I have a lot of energy, but I must also acknowledge that these may not be the case in the next two years. Therefore, I have decided not to run again. I will stay on as premier until my successor is chosen and continue to do my level best to make politics work for people. Um, so, I mean, it's sad that this is the way he has to go. But, I mean, you know, I think his legacy is at best mixed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, some good things were done. But, you know, Derek uh, Derek O'Keefe, who uh, uh, has done work with Ricochet and other sources, and he's one of the bigger voices of left politics within BC. He's run for office at the local level, at least. Um, has said, you know, no saccharine tributes or platitudes today. The balance of forces isn't good, and only collective struggle can change it. Not holding my breath for any real ideological differentiation in the leadership race, but would happy to be wrong. So we'll talk a little bit about that later, but he's citing the Thorn, which is a Vancouver, uh, uh, which is a uh, Vancouver uh, letter, uh, newsletter, that's talking about his legacy. And, you know, there's some good things in here. The return of card check unionization, the highest minimum wage in Canada, um, you know, the some uh, limiting annual rent hikes to inflation. Um, but uh, fundamentally, there's a lot of bad stuff, too. Yeah. Uh, the Wet'suwet'en, I mean, that alone, right? We've talked about that. But, you know, that that alone, the, the treatment of the Wet'suwet'en, uh, the use of the RCMP, which I know is a federal police, but, you know, under largely under B.C. control, Subsidies that have enabled fracking slash LNG, continued old forest logging, uh, you know, a failure, I think, to deal with the urgency of of uh, overdoses and, and the safe use. Although it should be said that in the last little bit, BC has sort of taken a national leadership in the effort to decriminalize, which, um, you know, should be commended, but maybe maybe not sufficient and, and not quick enough. People, of course, are angry at Site C, mm-hmm. uh, the dam project. Also, I definitely feel that uh, the, there was that moment where uh, Horgan's government, you know, overrode certain municipal efforts to limit police budgets by effectively just saying we're just going to give the cops money anyway, even <laughs> though municipal governments didn't want it. Um, you know, in the elections he ran in, he was the best choice. 
but yeah. I don't think it's ultimately what BC deserved. And frankly, I don't think it was nearly what was possible with the power he had, mm. right? You know, in that first term, yeah, he was technically constrained in some ways by the Greens, you know, for the first couple of years of his of his governance, where, you know, some things he wanted to do, like car check certification, the Greens wouldn't support it. Uh, the, the Greens had a, you know, kind of more business-friendly leader, and he did not support car check certification, and, you know, Horgan needed every Green vote they could get to make that happen, didn't have it. Um but there's no excuse. BC was running big surpluses. BC had a massive NDP majority government. Horgan, you know, had this big mandate. For much of the last few years, he's been one of the more popular leaders at the provincial level, one of the more popular politicians in Canada. And there hasn't been enough done, mm-hmm. right? There yeah, hasn't no, I, been nearly enough done, I'm, right? I'm just I, thinking about, like, when we were talking about the the raids on the West Wend and, and the the fact that there were so many people begging Horgan to do something, that that it was just... Well, if, no, well, they're the problem. He yeah. was doing something. He was just doing <laughs> evil, right? Yeah. Like, the thing with Horgan is that he's done a lot of bad things. He's done, on the edge, some good things. But Horgan's legacy, in some ways, might be his just his sheer inaction. Mm-hmm. Like, where's dental care? Yeah. Like, he talked about that. Like, they ran big surpluses. Where's dental care? Where's pharmacare? Like, I get it. Like, you know, y- y- maybe it takes time to implement. You know, it might be, you know, a three, four year window, especially if you're going to go it alone as a province. But where's dental care? Mm-hmm. Like, why doesn't the BC NDP work towards dental care? Where's free post-secondary education? Yeah. Or greatly subsidized post-secondary education? Where's student loan debt cancellation? Where's all of these things, right? Like, it's just not there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, in many ways, it's been among the better provincial governments. Um, you know, some of the things are good, but I think it, it's a failure to actually deliver what the NDP can deliver. We're not even asking for anything radical. I'm just like, where's the the basic social democratic advancements that the mega majority he's had? And, you know, the, the basically he's already been in office for about five years and he's still got a little bit of time. He's probably got another year in him, right? Because they're going to, basically, he's not going to resign until the BC NDP has a leadership contest. They go to the convention and pick the new leader. And that's when he'll probably resign as premier, making that person premier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because the, 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 the majority is so big that the next BC NDP uh, leader will become automatically premier and will likely finish out the, the four-year term before before running themselves. Um, and there just wasn't enough done. Yeah. So I think his tenure in some ways, like in some ways it's a success from a technical political perspective. He leaves reasonably popular. He won two governments. Um, you know, he was able to win a majority on a second. Um, he, at least at, at the... At, at, the party itself seems to be in a healthy position, like from an institutional perspective. But in terms of like energizing and, and, and you know, the, the progressives in BC, uh, marginalized groups in BC, uh, fighting some of the big social and political and economic and environmental issues of our day, I, you, know, you can't really call them a success. I don't think so. Yeah. No, not at all. Well, I guess the question has to be asked then, 
Christo, you know, if he essentially had a mandate and, and was considered the best option of what was there, is there not a concern that if all the cards fell right and, you know, we were able to energize people to uh, vote again for the first time ever in Ontario or to, you know, not vote again for the first time ever, either vote again or vote for the first time for the NDP and try to push more progressive politics? Is there not a fear that this sort of mixed ability to succeed that happened in BC could happen here? Or do you just think that it's such a different political landscape that, you know, the ONDP could have much more success here? I mean, I think a couple of things. One, he didn't really run on a very left wing platform. So mm-hmm. you might say that in a very technical perspective, that like he sort of offered what he you know he offered something and then you know he still broke promises again and when he did he often broke them to the left uh you know but the the reality is that like yeah this is one of the questions the the, the eternal questions is that once the NDP ends up in government can they slash will they are they able and or willing to actually implement the promises they make. Um, with Horgan, I think clearly he did like he failed to implement what as a consensus New Democrats support. And you know, we are a federated party. And so despite his budget surplus, despite the fact that they had money to spend, despite the fact that they um, had all of the political capital in the world, nothing was done. No dental, no pharma. like that I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but literally, that should have been priority one. I know mm. there's a whole bunch of priorities, but pharma and dental, like where the fuck was that, John? And like John, even he has these stories where he's like, oh, when I was a kid, I playing sports and I lost a tooth and I was very self-conscious about how that made me look. And I always thought that, you know, if I had dental care, I could have got that fixed cheaper and quicker and all that. And it's like, yeah, well, well, John, what about the fucking kids right now that are missing teeth and, and other people that are missing teeth? What about them? Right. Yeah. And it's just, um, yeah, I don't know. I would say that uh, as a as a technical premier, he's probably average at least, maybe slightly above. You know, he's not like a he ha- he hasn't been in power long enough to be ranked with like the all time great premiers or anything like that. If you're going to do like an objective academic analysis, but you know, he's um, yeah, I, I don't think he has any f- legacy defining successes. That would put him with other social democratic premiers, you know, whether it's in BC with like a Dave Barrett or like a Tommy Douglas or anything like that. And he, and he could have been, he yeah. easily could have been, and he chose not to. Right. And so I don't even think this is a thing where it's people, it's like, well, the NDP is fundamentally unable to keep his promises. And so therefore it's a contradiction of social democratic politics under capitalism. It's like, no, just the, the BC NDP, either, either uh, under Horgan's leadership, or maybe this is the caucus who knows, just didn't even, didn't even try Mm-hmm. So I guess that is a hopeful note, because I, I think that is a legitimate fear, this idea that the material circumstances of being in the role of premier in any province here in Canada will require you to not have these ideals that, um, that you know, he was the, the best 
choice. And even then, he wasn't able to follow through on what a majority of Andy Peers would want. But what you're suggesting is, you know, he had the ability and if he had just made some actual choices and and decided to carry on this, uh, you know, the, these ideals of what people wanted, he had the ability to. It's not as if the job or the circumstance would have stopped him from doing that. Like there's no fundamental economic barriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you said there's a surplus. I, I, so I, it's not even... I can't see a realistic reason why he couldn't have done some of those social programs is it right? just ambition like is it just like he wants to keep winning and that's the you know the eternal belief be of that, politics it could be that they were they they you know just i don't know i yeah. don't know i actually don't know i maybe he just didn't want to do it maybe he feared going it alone on some of these social programs and he wanted federal buy-in and like he felt that would make it more secure and be less politically uh risky he mm-hmm. didn't run on some of these programs technically in some cases, but like, like, you know, you could still implement them. You could say like, look, this is an urgent need. You know, our budget situation is better than maybe we expected. So I'm going to run on, you know, good social programs or whatever. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and, just, or, and I'm just going to implement them after an election. But where we're at is that this man was premier since 2017, basically. Um, and I don't know if his legacy Beyond, I guess, being, you know, a reasonable steward of the office, mm-hmm. you know, will be anything more than that. I don't know. Why do people want to be politicians in this province or in Canada, rather, unless you're able to make the sort of change we need so that Canada just isn't like a corporation in 25 years? You know, like, like, <laughs> yeah. why? Like, I just I don't get it. I mean, you ego, have the NDP. I guess it is ego. ego but at this ego. point in time, Crystal, like I get before now, but right now you look at what's happening and you want to get in politics and your idea isn't some type of, you know, mass transition and change of the political spectrum, then I don't know why you would think you'd want to do it. Cause you're not like, I think he's going to get raked in the coals here. I don't, you know, it's a sad situation of his reasons of why he can't continue, but I, I just, it seems like a waste. It really does seem like a waste. And it just, I don't know. It boggles the mind a little bit. This kind of ties into a nice uh, question here, a nice early question from our Discord again. If you want to ask questions on the show, just head to patreon.com slash Canada. a buck a month. We did it as low as they would let us. If there was an option to go lower, (laughs) we would. It's like when you get paid minimum wage. You should know that, you know, the businesses would love to pay you less if they could. Significantly in many cases. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so this is a question from, and it ties into this nicely, Arguably, Arugula once again looking into the leadership race here in Ontario and the idea that and I think maybe you can help substantiate some of this that in order to run in order to to put your name in the hat, you need to spend $50,000 non-refundable to even be considered, you know, officially. And and that idea that the NDP could have that sort of barrier That's for the to Ontario entry, Ontario Ontario yeah. leadership, yeah. So that that barrier of entry, like how do they ever expect to have someone that could represent, you know, just the ideals of regular Ontarians that clearly don't have that sort of cash? Like wh- why do you think that's you, you have a bit of more of an understanding of the framework here. So what, what's that about, man? I mean, I think to be clear, you can fundraise that amount. Yes, yes. Yes. So 
this is not necessarily me defending it because I think I'm going to I'm going to be criticizing it, but I just want to make it clear: it's not as if you, as an individual person, must pay fifty thousand dollars non-refundable. Mm-hmm. That that is not my understanding. I think you are able to fundraise that amount. Okay. Um, so many parties do this, uh, the liberals and conservatives as well, where there's a, a sort of minimum amount of people you maybe have to sign up plus a minimum amount of fundraising you have to do as a way of sort of narrowing the field. I guess the rationale being that if the goal is showing your viability as a leader, one of the things a party has to do, yes, even a, a left party, is raise money. And so you mm-hmm. need to be able to prove your ability to, to you know, get cash. And so, yeah, in some ways you can often loan money to your own uh, career, uh, to your own to your own camp- campaign. But uh, in general, uh, you know, fundraising, I think, can be acceptable. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I support a, like, a, a minimum, though. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you have to be good at fundraising. But... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. The narrative it is a little seems... different than this idea, though, that it's like from because it is, I guess, you know, you're, you're contributing. But the narrative is changed a little bit when it is meant to indicate that you can fundraise as opposed to just personal wealth. I yeah, I mean, yeah. that's my like. And if I'm wrong, correct. Uh, people will correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but like, I, I definitely think that uh, it's still a barrier. And mm-hmm. I definitely think that it sends maybe a bit of a negative message that um you know people have to raise a certain amount of money because one that does reduce accessibility like like ultimately what should be the the is a, is the person eligible to serve in office and is the person a member of the party in good standing mm-hmm. um that should be the only qualifications yeah <laughs> and then you let the party membership decide and of course if they want to raise money to to spend in their campaign and to prepare for the, their their time in office, and if they want to sign up lots and lots of people to you know bring the, the to increase their chances of winning, that's great, and that's that's part of the, the 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 process. But to set a minimum hard cap, I don't know if that's the best idea. And there's also the case that that again can potentially, at least potentially skew the character of the leadership race because let's just say you know the the only qualification was you needed to sign up a thousand new people or ten thousand new people or five thousand new people well then everyone's equal Mm -hmm. then fundamentally you have to tailor your strategy around signing up lots and lots of people um you know the one criticism would be in a one member one vote you might focus on high density areas Maybe to the detriment of smaller, more uh, uh, widespread, like you know, more diluted communities. Uh, the conservatives fixed this. At least uh, they they try to fix it with their point system, where each riding is given an equal weight. But the NDP doesn't do that. But you know, hypothetically, everyone's equal. And so when you're doing your outreach in terms of your organizing and your policy building, your approach and vision for the party, um, you can do it in that way. But if all of a sudden you need money and you need lots of money to run a leadership campaign, you need $50,000, again, minimum, just to get on the ballot effectively, well, then there's a chance that who you talk to, where you hold your events, what kind of events you hold, what you talk about at those events, what you don't talk about at those events might skew, 
maybe even only subconsciously, because it's not just about signing up lots of members and building a good platform that you feel the existing membership will vote for. It's also, I need to talk to, say, the upper middle class people in the NDP, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, the, the people that maybe make high five figures, low six figures, not even... There's not a whole bunch of millionaires in the NDP, but you know what I mean? Like the relative voices of privilege, perhaps, in the party that have the ability to cut me a two, three, four hundred dollar check. Right. And I can meet four of those people in one afternoon if I go to the right place. And that's like sixteen hundred bucks right there. Yeah. Whereas I could go to a community event where maybe people are low income, sign up a hundred folks. But, you know, maybe total I might get like, you know, a couple hundred bucks from them. Um, and you know, maybe you start to say, Hey, those four people are worth more to my need to get on the ballot than the four, four, 40 people that I can meet at a community center. Right. And that's where I think there could be issues. I don't know what the full answer is though, Yeah. because I do think it's fair that the party finds some metric to judge the various leadership capabilities. Ultimately, however, I think maybe that should be left up to the membership. Maybe the membership should be allowed to decide and say, hey, I like this person's policies, but they really suck at fundraising and we're going to need money. And so I'm not going to vote for them. But that should be the membership's decision, right? Maybe those numbers have to be very transparent. And on the ballot, it even says how many members they signed up and how much money they raised right next to their name on the ballot. And if, uh, you know... Joe Joe Smith from uh, from Sudbury, who's an NDP member, wants to base his decision based off fundraising or anything like that. He can do that. But I don't know if I would go on to restrict people from the ballot, especially for something financial, mm-hmm. because, again, it skews. I'd be more likely to accept, uh, you know, signing up people, maybe signing up a raw amount of people, maybe yeah. with a regional quota. You'd say a thousand people or two thousand or whatever it is, and you need to have so many from the various "quote unquote" regions of the province. So well, it can't ex- all be GTA. It's something. exactly what you said. That if we do have this baseline and this minimum, then of course, you know, the, the capital within the party is going to push us towards, you know, certain even ideological differences that would benefit, you know, maybe not the more progressive wings, maybe, but maybe not. So I just, I, for me, and I think for a lot of our listeners, that idea is kind of what's almost wrong with politics on a fundamental level in some ways that, you know, there is this minimum, like you said, you can spend one afternoon talking to four people or a couple days trying to really help communities and, and maybe get to that level. Um, do you think that, you know, that's anything that would change anytime soon? Like maybe that's just a carryover of the way politics has been done in the past. But I just feel like so many times here, Krista, when we talk about the future of the NDP, whether it's in Ontario or just generally for the country, we get to a point where it's like, I think we just plainly need someone who is more progressive and like a little louder and bigger with that. We talked to David Mosscrop about that. And I think that was a lot of the consensus. And I just feel like these sort of policies kind of reinforce catering to a portion of the party that maybe doesn't need the same sort of things that maybe most Canadians need. Like, I, I think it's fair to say that if you can cut a $400 check on a Tuesday, then you probably aren't in the same boat as most Canadians. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, I I do think that puts you in a different financial position and you probably have different needs. You know, 
Uh, do you think this would be a policy they would do away with anytime soon? Or is this probably just, not? No, yeah, I mean, I think it's there, probably right? going to be in place. Yeah, this is pretty standard for politics. Yeah. So I think it's going to stick around. Uh, the debate will probably always end up being how much money. And usually I think the NDP amounts are on the lower end. It is not to defend it, but to contextualize it. Is there a requirement for signups? You had mentioned that. Do you know if there's... I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to see the the, the leadership thing. If there there could be a requirement for signups, I'm not sure. Uh, Ultimately, um, I'm not the biggest fan, but it's probably not going anywhere. And I do think that while it has the potential to... um, to help bigger candidates, we should also recognize maybe as a challenge to what we to to ourselves and what we just said that, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders has proven mm-hmm. that you can sign up a lot of people and raise a lot of money mm-hmm. if you get small donations. It's way harder. It's way harder. Uh, it requires a very special kind of candidate with a very special kind of campaign. That's a good point, yeah. But, you know, Bernie's like, this is the whole thing. Remember, go all the way back to twenty twenty seven dollars. Remember, the, you know, yeah, twenty seven dollars. <laughs> his average donation was twenty seven dollars. Right. Yeah. And he he, uh, you know, especially in 2020, he in many cases just vastly out fundraised the field. Right. If you mm-hmm. exclude, you know, shadowy pack donations and Pete Buttigieg's wine cave and all of the <laughs> all of those things yeah. right oh like, take yeah. us back to the wine cave yeah. times folks but you know Jeez. like those like th- like if you if you know bernie raised a ton of money so you know yes there there is the potential that this sort of rule could reinforce you know an insider type mm-hmm. who's got connections to money and maybe their own money where they're able to lend their campaign a big chunk to start and they you know they don't have to worry about it because they can afford to effectively lose ten thousand dollars for an indeterminate amount of time blah 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 you know and, and then say to you know to, to 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 somebody who's maybe low income and is a bit of an outsider uh it, it could be difficult right and i think that's true but it shouldn't necessarily stop somebody that wants to bring a left-wing vision like you know, could see hypothetically someone like joel harden yeah. who could through small to medium-sized donations raise that money over a broader group of people. He's already proven his ability to win lots of votes. Maybe he could prove his ability to win lots of money, even if it's in a different way than again, just getting, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the three, four, five, six hundred dollar checks from, you know, uh, your relatively well off members. Right. Mm-hmm. I still think that's, I don't know if he's even the candidate that can get to that 50,000 mark $27 at a time, you know, like that way. People will get to the 50. I mean, people that run, like, I mean, like, look, like last time, like Nikki Ashton, the, I forget what the number was, but like Nikki Ashton, you know, got to the number and so did Singh and so did Caron and so did, uh, I don't know if uh, Peter Julian, uh, yeah, I, I assume he got to the number as well. Like the, all the Charlie Angus, like the final four who ended up on the ballot, a Julian, I dropped out at an earlier point, but you know, all of the people who like gave it a big run and Nikki Ashton was sort of, you know, a, a, a relative left-wing candidate and sort of was running against parts of the party establishment and was still able to do it. So I don't think necessarily that someone like a Joel Harden won't be able to run because of this, but there will hypothetically be people who would want to run and share their vision, 
that won't be able to do so because of this. Now, maybe those wouldn't have been the people that could win anyway. Mm. But, you know, if you, some people view a leadership contest not simply as we're going to pick the next person, the next guy, gal, whoever, to be uh, our, our leader. But it's also about a, a real deep dive into the values and assumptions and, of the party. And sometimes a, a non-winner can have a profound effect, but they can't if they can't get on the stage, if yeah. they can't get onto the official leadership. You know, again, like Bernie Sanders, he lost both times, um, you know, uh, unfortunately for mm -hmm. everybody. Uh, but the, <laughs> the reality is that provided that even, even with that, he still fundamentally shaped American politics going forward. Yeah. And he wouldn't have done that if he simply remained a senator uh, you know, who had these views and had a very small kind of like following be outside of Vermont, but, you know, wasn't this global figure, mm -hmm. right? And so that is fair to say. And there yeah. could be, say, a young person from, you know, the GTA or Ottawa or somewhere that was going to run and sign up people and, would you know, was really going to give it a go, but just knows that either they don't think they can raise 50 or... Or they, 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 you know what I mean? So I, yeah. I, I am very sympathetic to that. I yeah. am. I don't think it'll ultimately affect any of the tier one or tier two or maybe even tier three candidates from running. Yeah. Like, I don't think any MPP that's going to run is going to be excluded by a $50,000 thing. They'll be able to get the money. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, who what, what voices do we lose even from the quote unquote fringes not yeah. even ideological, but like from like the, the, the you know, the, the demographic, the, the, yeah, the demographic yeah. <laughs> fringes maybe of this race. Yeah. And yeah, the $50,000 is very prohibitive. And maybe parties do that sometimes because a party could, um, you know, if it wants, use things like this to, uh, to either include or exclude uh, the, or increase or decrease the size of the race. Mm -hmm. You want a big race with a lot of candidates? Well, then you don't have a very big fundraising limit. You want to you want to by design have a race that ultimately ends up being three four people, then yeah you can do things like you need to sign up a lot of folks and you need to yeah. raise a lot of money, right? You can do that and and like you know parties ultimately as organizations do have a right to sort of determine, you know those broad parameters of how they want their leadership races to go, right? Even mm -hmm. if we maybe maybe we disagree. <laughs> I do think probably the most upsetting thing about that entire situation is the Bernie Sanders effect. The idea that if you do have this, like you said, if, if you do have this baseline that is not reached, even if that person isn't going to win, and I, that's not the case in the Bernie Sanders uh, example, because he absolutely could have, but in Ontario or, or federally, to have some different sort of voices that can be wildly popular, because usually those policies, as we've said on the show so many times, you know, these progressive policies are very, very popular. So to have someone who is on those stay on that stage able to espouse something that is very you know, socially uh, socialist democratic in Canada, I think could be a big win and maybe move everyone. But like you said, this number might prohibit that. And I think it's a, a really it interesting. Might, but we have to remember Bernie, Bernie. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying he's like, oh, he's a big, big, big money insider. But Bernie Sanders was a senator yeah. for, you know, eight years at that point, had been in Washington as a congressman since I believe 1990. Um, and before that was mayor of Burlington. Um, Bernie Sanders is an outsider in the sense, but again, uh, I don't know if 
the fundraising limit is going to stop what the equivalent of a Bernie would be, which would yeah. be somebody from within elected politics already. Mm. Right. You're not going to stop a Bernie necessarily because the, the Bernie might hypothetically be somebody within the ONDP caucus or federal NDP caucus, maybe a city councilor from somewhere in the province, something like that. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but like, and I don't, I don't know if the Democratic Party has a fund, like their system's more open in that way. Yeah. But, you know, you have to, U.S., to, you need to raise even way more money to run oh, yeah. a leadership campaign in the U.S. because it's a whole big national thing. You have primaries everywhere. It's not just one week. It's, it's a year-long process, you know, uh, more than a year, really. Um, yeah. But, yeah. You're, but you are right that, that this could squelch certain voices. Who would maybe well, want to run even even just like to be cynical? I'm not trying to judge, but even to run like a protest campaign, of course, yeah, to protest a scandal and the, and use that platform where you can't be ignored, and mm -hmm. that's gone now, right? That's gone now for for the most part. And I think this is a good tie-in to since we're doing questions in the middle of the show, we're doing a bit of a shake-up here. Uh, there's one question that a few people on the Discord have highlighted. It's from Manny, who is uh, new to our little community. Thank you so much for, for joining up. He basically wrote a novel. I am not going to be saying all of it, Manny, unfortunately, dis despite how uh, interesting it is. The basic premise is, I remember uh, last show, we talked about some comments from Christian Friedland about the role of the Liberal Party and the NDP in their agreement that they have. And the idea that the Liberal Party is absolutely in control that that should not be you know mired with it that is what the situation is so manny poses the question and it basically comes up to this that is this now with that information is this now time for the federal ndp to perhaps play the politics game and call for a confidence vote he writes a whole paragraph of what he believes jugmeet should say basically identifying that Based on the spirit of what the agreement was, you know, this has not been followed through and that even if it's, you know, even if a non-confidence vote now is called, it's very, very unlikely that vote would be passed. But the idea that the NDP could still uh, maintain the moral high ground while being free to criticize and yet support liberal legislation so he's, he's doing a little strategy gaming here we're doing some some 4d chess you know w what do you think of that idea and i'll just you know summarize it here of the ndp playing politics calling for that confidence vote based on you know what ha the liberal party has been doing the last two months i don't think it would go well okay That's let's hear it Let, i want to hear because he spent uh, all this time things. writing this, so I want to know. Yeah, no, 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 for sure. <laughs> no, and I, and I don't think it's an unreasonable point. I just, I'm skeptical of the effectiveness. One, it won't work right now. Uh, uh, the conservatives will probably not vote down a government until such time that the leadership race is over, right? Yeah, that makes you sense. You know what I mean? Like, they have their leadership race coming up. Look, I mean, maybe they would, I don't know, but I, I, I feel like, you know, it looks like Polly Ever is probably going to win. But the leadership race is still, I don't know when the actual vote is, but it's it's not now. <laughs> um, and so that's until that happens, the conservatives are probably reluctant to do that. One, the deal was made and unless I'm mistaken, there has not yet been an outright breaking of any term of the deal. Yeah. Now, if they feel the deal is insufficient 
and we should have asked for more and the deal's not worth holding and we should just break the deal now, fine, we can have that discussion. But if unless there's a term in the deal that's been definitively broken, a timeline definitively missed, then I think it would be difficult as the junior partner in a deal with without the ability to unilaterally end parliament, you do not have full balance of power, to make that move. I feel that a lot of the people that would consider voting NDP, you know, the broad NDP voting universe, like the deal. And I don't know if there's been enough of anything happening right now to fundamentally change that. Do you think that his, uh, and I'm just citing Manny's question here, uh, the the concept that the actions have not been in the spirit of the deal wouldn't be enough to muster this sort of response? I, I At this stage, I, I don't think so. Yeah. You I need those timeline breaks. You need those things not actually yeah, being like, held. Like, I think it would be hard to explain to Canadians. Mm-hmm. Why you're canceling the deal based on the spirit when it doesn't appear like there's been any broken promises on the deal? Because, again, right from the beginning, it's been very clear, and the NDP would admit this as well. Like, this is not a coalition government. This is a set of principles to help guide the next few years. Um, and I think I think it would be I think it would there could be a lot of backlash. There could yeah. be a lot of backlash from voters if. They, you cancel the deal because that, that would effectively end the deal. You do that and your vote of confidence fails. The liberals might say, okay, well, now we're not going to do dental care. We're not going to do pharmacare. We're not going to do any of that. What would be you the benefit the even? Like I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing, is it just this idea? And maybe that's what it is, that it is the moral high ground because of the choices that the liberal party has made and the idea that, you know, they just don't believe that the liberals are going to do dental and pharma and maybe this will actually help people. Because if it's not that, I'm not sure even strategy wise how any voters would think this is like a good look for the NDP, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe maybe your goal would be like you're going to pull down the government and maybe run a new election and hopefully you win some seats, continue to have the balance of power or, or form mm-hmm. government or what have you. It could be an effort to sort of draw that you still have independence from the liberals, which could help in an election where maybe the liberals look like they're not going to have a very good one. If you want to still be seen as their alternative, then it'll, it's more difficult if you're, um, you know, you've been propping yeah. them up, right? Um, it could be as a way of maybe getting more concessions in a deal, getting back to the table on a deal to really uh, show that you mean business. But, you know, I don't know if it'll achieve any of that, mm-hmm. right? The deal right now, I think, would fail the, 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 to, to call a confidence vote. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, if you succeed and we have an election and even Singh does a little bit better, I still think what ends up happening is it's another minority government, right? Yeah. And if it's another minority government, well, what are you going to do? You're going to make another deal. <laughs> yeah. And maybe you'll make another deal and the deal will be better. Maybe you'll make another deal and the deal will be worse. Maybe there is no deal. Maybe the liberals do what they did from the 2019 to 2021 parliament, which would make no deal with any party and yeah. basically just say you know, we'll, we'll govern on a bill-by-bill bill basis, right? And we, we, all three parties need to unite to take us down. We don't feel that's very likely, and they were probably right to think that. Uh, so we're just basically going to govern as if we are the only party in charge, and the other parties can vote for our bills or not vote for them, right? And mm-hmm. usually we'll get enough people across the aisle to vote for any one bill, right? 
Yeah, um, it, it is like if this was 2024 and we didn't have those very basic things that maybe the liberals were going to do anyway, you know, like pharma and dental that I don't even necessarily think this deal guarantees. Like, I, I do think that would be a great push and there are some good things in this deal. But if that didn't happen and we were passed, because I believe there are some 2023 deadlines for some of those provisions when it comes to dental and pharma, I think then you would have a lot more support from just average voters and average Canadians thinking, you know, you did this to try to get this for us. We don't have this now, so we'll move around. I don't know if average voters feel like this deal stops the NDP from being critical of the Liberal Party, which seems to be like maybe the the big goal of this question. Like, I, I just I don't yeah. see that. It translates I mean, maybe for us because we're you know, you're so deep yeah. in it. But I don't think average Canadians really give a shit about that. I mean, Singh and the and the NDP still are critical of the Liberals, yeah, right? All the time. Like, you know, um, but, you know, some people might feel that the criticism rings hollow when you have a deal with them, right? So maybe one argument could be, you know, like, it, it, you know, you have to really flex your muscle. If you don't yeah. flex your muscle, then then maybe you don't have you don't have that uh, that that real. That's a good point. For, yeah. Yeah. For lack of a better term, you, you, you need to have that 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 like that willingness to, to 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 pull things down but i just i don't know at this stage i really feel like that would not go well for Singh and the ndp to pull the government down at this stage or to threaten to do so at this stage yeah um, maybe you make a maybe you say to justin trudeau or you say to the media look we got this deal and one of the terms of the deal is that we could we could have we i think there's provisions set out for periodic meetings and provisions set out to say that you know this deal is locked in but it's not as if to say we can't come back to the table and make more terms and maybe Singh says you know we have to discuss uh, fighting inflation we have to do all of this and we want to make it an official part of our ongoing you know cooperation Mm -hmm. Um, maybe that would be more effective that would one uh, show that you're willing to still make the deal better uh, but not necessarily pull the entire government down at a time where people still feel things are in flux, right? Um, and a lot of people, one of the th- reasons people like this deal is that people are like, well, you know, it's no, no, no conservative government till 2025. We have some re- breathing room. Um, and, you know, if the NDP is all of a sudden gunning for an election this year or next year. A lot of people are going to be like, why are they trying to drag us to the next conservative government two years early? These are all these are all things that I think the party would have a difficult time answering. Now, if the liberals all of a sudden pull out of a key part of the deal, then all bets are off. And then I think that you really do have to have a discussion about, you know, uh, what you would do at that point. And, and, and you know, will uh, Canadians support you for, you know, calling the government into question uh because they broke the deal. I think yeah. that's a different case. Yeah, it's it's odd. And I think we, we get this a lot here. The idea that, you know, to believe in, in many of the things that uh, you and I and our listeners believe it require a sort of, you know, moral clarity and and maybe, dare I say it, even a sense of, of righteousness. And I understand that. But the idea that you would forego any sort of advancement for something that perhaps isn't as you know, morally clear or as righteous as other things. Like there's no guarantee that this is helping Canadians by doing this. Like I, I, we talked about it in our show and we talked about this deal, like having this deal is better than not for the average Canadian at this point. And we'll see if that will be the case year in, year out. 
But the idea that you need to move your weight and it's, you know, um, about moral clarity and then it's wrong for the sake of maybe strategic gains is the exact opposite thing that I want from my NDP politicians. I don't want them invoking the the righteous anger in order to maybe get a political gain. I want them doing that when it is for a principled stand that will help Canadians. And I just, at this point in time, I don't think that doing that actually reinforces that principled stand. Like, I, I don't want there to be this, this politicking and strategic moving. I want to have the Bernie Sanders-style politicians that are coming in strong, that have those clear moves, that are bringing in the people like we're talking about here. So, yeah, maybe I'm missing a point here, but I, I do think that this is maybe a move in the wrong direction. Maybe you could say that since they agreed to this, they're, they already are willing to, you know, uh, devolve into certain political machinations that require this. But, uh, yeah, I just don't think it's going to happen. Don't think it's a smart move. And I guess we'll see anything else on that before we move on. Uh, no, I think we're good. I think it's, I think it's a great question. Yeah. It's interesting. And I don't think Absolutely. it's um, something to not consider. I just think that at this stage, I feel like the negatives would outweigh the potential negatives would outweigh the potential positives. Although I do think it's something that we have to keep an eye on going forward, because yeah. uh, if the deal is broken in some ways, then, you know, the party has to 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 have real intestinal fortitude mm -hmm. about what they're going to do. And speaking of intestinal fortitude, let's all take a deep breath and talk about the obviously the huge story that uh, finally came into fruition south of the border here with the overturning of uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, something we knew that was coming in the United States for uh, a long time. We had a whole show and so many people who have such great resources on this have talked about it. Uh, once again, when this news broke, Christo, it's what we saw the first time. There was a large push, at least online, for this idea that Canada would be a safe haven and that there's going to be like abortion tourism, which then required experts and advocates for women's health in Canada to say, like, you know, slow your roll. It's it's decriminalized here, but it's not sanctified and protected. And there's yeah. lawsuits going on uh, out east about for women uh, on behalf of women that are not yeah. getting access to abortions for this same sort of arbitrary reasoning. So I, I do think maybe it's important to to touch on that again. Like once Canada's yeah. never a utopia for any sort of principled ideals when comparing it to America. Like we're just we're simply not in that place. And when it comes to abortion, like yeah, it, it's not in the same ballpark. What did we talk about last time? It's like if a doctor, if you can't get access to stomach surgery in a region, is that not the same as not being allowed to have it? Like that's kind of what's happening here in many different areas when it comes to abortion. So, yeah, I just I, I I'm a little surprised that there was that response again when so many advocates, Canadian advocates, immediately shut people down that were talking that way when this was first, a, you know, the the idea that this would happen, I think, over a month ago now. So, yeah, uh, yeah I think that's just where we're at with that. Yeah, I mean, look, at this stage, like, we, we talked a lot about, because, you know, as we know, the, 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 the report was leaked uh, a few weeks ago now, a couple months ago, and I don't even know. Yeah, it the, seems like a long time. Time <laughs> melds together. But yeah, we the report was leaked, and it was the, what we got was effectively every bit as bad as we thought it would be. Uh, it wasn't much better, uh, and it was even worse when we found that Clarence, I won't go too deep, You people, listeners have found this, where Clarence Thomas, although writing on his own, 
we should stress, but I don't think he's the only one with this opinion. I don't know if they have five, but they probably have a, a one or two more uh, to effectively say that we should actually do what we just did to Roe, we should do to contraception, uh, gay sex, and gay marriage <laughs> uh, to effectively allow states, if they so choose, to restrict and or ban those those things. Yeah. Uh, so this this could literally just be the beginning. There's also efforts... Now there's going to be efforts by Republicans potentially to ban uh, abortion nationwide, to pass a bill in uh, Congress and uh, do what they just did, but ban abortion even in the bluest of blue states. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is, you know, a big moment. Uh, This isn't to say, because, you know, like, I feel like in Canada, and we're guilty of this too, it's like sometimes you want to go so, you want to be so vigilant against the smug maple washing, (laughs) you know, the Luke Luke Savage's term for you kind of like whitewashing or pinkwashing or whatever. Uh, rainbow washing, maple washing, that you just say that your know, Canada isn't better at all ever. And I will say that, like, look, I, I think that in the short and maybe even medium term, it's not as bad here. But make no mistake, there is a sizable portion of the federal conservative party that wants to see a challenge to abortion rights. And very maybe well could. They, like, that's the scary part And they here, very right? well could. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's not going to be a main platform. They're not going to run on it like like some American conservatives will. But it is it is something a sizable portion of that party support. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in their membership and in their elected. If you look at like the, the views of individual members of parliament, this will be an issue. Um, and in Canada, one of the benefits and a lot of feminists, a lot of experts on this, a lot of uh Right, abortion rights advocates have said things like, "You look, we don't want to have a law legalizing abortion. The whole point is that a, you, you don't legalize lung cancer treatment. You yeah. don't legalize. You don't uh, want it to be a political surgery. issue. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah, well I don't think they're that Pollyanna. It's always going to be political because everything yeah. is political. Healthcare, but they don't want it to be a criminal issue mm-hmm. in the sense that, again, knee surgery isn't legal or illegal. Knee surgery is a medical procedure." Um, but the the downside to some of this is that, like with any other procedure, but this one with the added wrinkle that it is seen as more inherently political, even in Canada, you know, you can be denied access to it without ever being formally denied access, whether it's uh, certain locales refusing to provide the service, whether it's you live in an isolated community, whether it's, you know, you, uh, you know, you face other barriers, um, all of that can create potential issues. And I mean, even in some cases, in some cases, at least according to some, Canada, it's harder to get an abortion in Canada than in the U.S. Yeah. Like uh, I wrote I, I, uh, last week, as this was breaking a few days ago, I shared a, a, a really good thread by, by a, a, a woman talking about her experience with a late term abortion, oh, right? It Where was it was harrowing, to, to save man. her life, right? Oh uh, and in response, Jennifer Howard, who is the Jagmeet's chief of staff at, at the federal party, she said, you know, um, uh, in Canada, if you need an abortion after 22 weeks, which is almost always because it's resulting in the death of the mother or if it's about fetal viability, very, very few abortions, you know, after the initial period are, are, are quote unquote elective. And I'm not making yeah. a moral judgment here. I'm not going to be Bill Clintonian and say, you know, we it's want rare. to be safe, legal and rare, right? <laughs> like, like, look, like if, if people who can have babies, I, I, it's your choice. I don't care. You can do, you could do it just cause, just cause, if you just, just cause I'm, I, I'm not going to get into this trap of, of, of like the good abortion, right? Mm-hmm. But it is to say that in this particular case, you're almost always dealing with tragedies, 
Yeah. Right. You're not just dealing with somebody who like had this and they're having a routine procedure and they, you know, whatever. Right. And that's fine. Like you're dealing with cases where there's, there's a, a, a emotional tragedy and maybe a medical tragedy as well. And she says, you may have to go to the States because there are a few places in Canada where you can get an abortion after 22 weeks. And there are at least in certain parts of the United States, you may be more likely to get certain abortion treatments than certain parts of Canada. Yeah. I don't want to necessarily say that that might be Alabama necessarily, but it might be the case that, you know, if you live in certain parts of the country, especially because maybe you live in a rural part of Canada and the nearest big city is actually in the United States, just purely geographically. Right. Like yeah, you know, they like, talked about that in areas of Saskatchewan in particular, the stories yeah. that are coming in the last week that it's just, you know, it's a three day journey, which sounds a lot like, you know, the stories that you've heard in the deep South before this yeah. was passed. For well, people in the U S and I know. don't know the numbers in Canada, but I did. I was listening to the five thirty eight podcast earlier today. And what they said was that on average now, as a result of this, Women will in, in 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 a lot of the states where they're canceling the, the access either fully or 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 almost fully uh, access to abortion. Uh, women on average or people on average will have to travel about five hundred miles each way, which you know I think what's that ten hours of driving? Drive fifty five oh, miles an hour? I think it's yeah. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, but you know, like let's say you're driving, you you don't get you don't have the luxury or the ability to take a plane. You know, that's like ten hours, right? Mm. It's a big ordeal on its own. It's a big thing. You have to, you know, you probably have to get family to come with you, friends to come with you, a trusted person to come with you. In addition to the the missing work, in addition to hotels and and the cost of the procedure itself, uh, yeah, it's it's a ma- it's a major issue, and that exists in Canada already by virtue of the fact that some people live in isolated communities that don't have reliable access to the service. But the point is that um, while it is good to see Canadian leaders come out and say that they support the right to choose and they show solidarity with people in the United States who need this medical procedure or who may need it in the future and that Canada will accept people coming here for that, that's all great and I don't want to downplay that. The reality is that we have fundamental access issues Mm -hmm. in this country and maybe the best example we can give uh, to women at home and abroad is not to simply say, oh, we'll welcome American women, but to ensure that every person in Canada that needs an abortion can get an abortion. Yeah. And then, um, you know, look at uh, our, our moralizing. I, I, I don't think we're there yet. Even yeah. if it is true, you know, or we're not looking at currently banning it right now. But, you know, it's um, it's something that could happen, mm-hmm. right? It, it'll, you know, it, it'll, it'll be, it'll be tricky. And again, the way the, the downside of all of this is that a conservative government or p- conservative provincial governments or or what have you could curtail abortion access maybe without having to go forward and doing an open banning of the process yeah. or open restriction because they could just do it through how they allocate health money right you know mm-hmm. maybe they could get super creative about how you access certain monies it's classic prejudice Christo. it's like it's the way that this systemically has happened against any sort of minority in canada or in the western world for you know most of time and this idea that it's not as loudly trumpeted and i think that's you i really think you hit a nail on the head there like i i don't think we should just say like oh yeah we're just as bad as what's happening in the United States. Cause I do think that, and I think maybe even I was illustrating that earlier. So I do want to 
say I I do recognize the difference the 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 way in which women are specifically the target of hate and attack in the United States I don't think is happening in the exact same way here but the idea that it could happen here and there's still systemic prejudices that stop this from happening is absolutely true and it's scary to think about how many elected officials that live in this great country of ours that would like to make abortion illegal in Canada. Like it's not an insignificant amount of conservatives that you maybe have donated to these causes, have received money themselves from these organizations that have spoken out about it. Like it is something that is very real. You know, the path to it, I think, would be different than what we've seen in the United States. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a big attack on everything that we hold dear. And it's uh, incredibly upsetting. Hopefully this can stir up something more than just fundraising emails from the Democrats in the United States. Right. Like, hopefully this will actually do something. Hopefully. And I just look at the time here. Got a little bit of time. So I got two different stories. I want to touch more on this one. So war in Ukraine still going on, obviously not reaching the headlines as it once was. But this idea that this war is being supported by NATO forces through, you know, sending obscene amounts of money, trying to buy uh, different military hardware from South Korea and sending it to Ukrainian forces. That's what Canada is trying to do right now. Did you know, Christo, that they can neither confirm nor deny the, uh, (laughs) oh, Jesus, the uh, defense minister, Anita Anan, that there are, in fact, a few dozen commandos from Canada as well that have been operating in Ukraine since the war began. There was the big news that the United States and other countries were withdrawing their military instructors. Canadians were, were part of that contingent. But I don't think it was known that there are still commandos working there right now. And I do think that those people are probably not doing some chill stuff. Like it's probably some horrifying shit that maybe three years from now, if I'm lucky, if I'm a betting man, will be like an Amazon TV show based on those actions. Like I'm pretty sure based on what we've seen that they'll turn it into that. But I was completely shocked that maybe I shouldn't have been, but that this is uh, going on and there's not really a care about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, it's certainly... It's concerning because, like, we can't we can't say what they're doing. They could be in a training role, but it seems like we didn't know about this. Yeah, like it kind of just came up in a report. A lot's been happening, obviously, so it didn't get as much attention as it would have at the beginning of the war, where the the Ukrainian conflict was was the the story every day, every hour. But it is concerning in a lot of ways because, um, you know, it, it, it there's a sense that maybe Canadians don't have a full sense. Of, mm-hmm. of what's happening in there in, in this conflict. And I understand that like, you know, when you're talking about war, like, you know, secrecy and, and, and all those things can, can play a role, uh, you know, but I feel like that Canadian troops in a sense are on the ground. There um, is something that Canadians need to know about. Yeah. And I worry about the consequences here. Not necessarily. Yeah, of course that they're, they're maybe they're doing, they're doing like war crime stuff. Who knows? Right. <laughs> like Canadian government, the Canadian military is, will do evil stuff. But I think even, even just beyond that, like what happens if in some accidental moment or because of some overreach or something, you know, there ends up being fo- shots fired between Canadian forces and Russian forces. And 
Um, does yeah. that lead to an, uh, an Article 5 mm. activation? And like, how does that affect NATO uh, and it, a broader war against Russia? Like, these are things that they've always had really careful discussions about. You know, why yeah. can't we send aircraft? Well, to send aircraft, you likely need to send people that can fly them, at least at the beginning, as you train people. And what if an aircraft is shot down? What if, you know, those, all, all of that, like anti-aircraft missiles shot from outside the country, does that trigger Article 5? There's always been these discussions. But, like, I would say that, like, you know, direct combat, and I'm not suggesting this is happening because we don't know, but direct combat between, you know, C Canadian or NATO forces in Ukraine against Russian soldiers yeah. would would likely be what you would, the textbook definition of an <laughs> Article 5 thing, where all of a sudden now, uh, maybe you would have to have all the NATO countries join an act of war against Russia, and of course that would be a major escalation. So I think Canadians deserve to know where our troops are, especially as it pertains to an active war, where we're ostensibly at least our understanding, and maybe we're wrong, maybe like, who knows, maybe we're wrong, but was that Canada was not sending people, we were sending money and weapons and, 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 and things like that. Maybe these people are purely in advisory roles, but um, it seems like a pretty big piece of news to drop yeah. months after the war had, had started, right? Yeah, you know, no. this, they hadn't just gotten there, right? You know, <laughs> I, I think that they'll call the show Putin's Folly. That's what I want to end us with today. I think that yeah. we are such in a state where, you know, we've deified. If you've seen any of the, you know, popular television shows that are on major streaming networks about the military, it's instances like this that become the fodder. And like you said, it might be instructors, although they did have information saying specifically that instructors are being withdrawn. So I, I do kind of question yeah. the use of the yeah. term special. Like yeah. They use the term special forces, which is a little, you know, a little scary about what's going on there. Like, I don't necessarily think it's just rescue efforts. We'll put it that way. If there's only, you know, uh, a hundred, a few dozen, I don't think it's rescue efforts. And yeah, like you said, I, I would want to know if we're doing something that will lead to our annihilation globally. I like, I don't want it to be shrouded under this, this, uh, the veil of what war is, because this is the shit everyone who is against this is trying to stop this exact thing to make sure it doesn't escalate. Oh, and by the way, it's been happening the whole time. So yeah. absolutely. We'll, we'll keep watching it, but, uh, hopefully it is just, Hopefully they're just helping out, right? Hopefully they're they're helping people with they're helping getting kitties out of trees. That's what I want to hope for there. Some Ukrainian cats. All right. All right. So that's all for us this week. Uh, oh, we should say because I'm looking at the date here. In uh, by the time our next show happens, we'll pass by Canada Day. Hopefully, if you're in Ottawa or any other you know major city during that time, this claimed trucker convoy uh, resurgence that is happening is safe and is just like a little fart in the wind and and means nothing. But if it is something that is impactful, you know, we should say that last time there were very credible threats of people trying to fucking firebomb places and do kind of active terrorism in a, in a real clear way. So stay safe. Yeah, absolutely be safe. And hopefully next week I can reaffirm this idea that it was just a fart in the wind because I do like saying that. So we'll, we'll see you next week. Left Turn Canada. Thank you.